Clay, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about your attitude on this mm. podcast that I want, I want to counsel on. I think you've got this sort of smart alky sort of attitude, and it's almost with a quality of like fucking anger to it. And I don't find the exact fucking words for it, but it fucking disturbs me, and it concerns me. And I think we're going to have to do something about it to fix this podcast going forward. Well, I'll tell you, Wes. Things are very difficult for me, and I've always thought that people angry at their difficulties often act like fucking idiots. So, <laughs> so excuse me. Excuse me. Well, I just jerked off on your horse, so that'll teach you to talk this, to me like that. Uh, this might be an all-timer for a new disgusting phrase that I've never uh, encountered anywhere in my life, which yep. is... Uh, the comes true author. Yeah, the comes true author. <laughs> <laughs> when you go to a when you go to a OBGYN uh, for mm. pregnancy, the, that's the, what the doctor will say to you. It's a very medical term. She'll say, "Do you want to have a genetic test done? Or are you sure about the comes true author?" And you say, "I'm pretty sure." And they say, "Good enough." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if the baby comes out with the same color hair, you're in the sh- made in the shade, as they say. Uh, <clears throat> this is something very expensive, which is the latest episode of Deadwood that we're going to be talking about. We are going to get down to the true author of this one. Right after we play the music, we'll come back and we'll break it down. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. This is Something Very Expensive. It's the sixth episode of the second season of Deadwood, directed by Steve Schill, written by Steve Schill. It's kind of unusual for that to happen in these shows. In this one, called Something Very Expensive, Cochran declares Swearingen ready to meet the world, and he is soon propped up and receiving a long line of supplicants. Wu approaches a cart driven into town by Lee and his men. He slices open its canvas sides, revealing a cage filled with Chinese women. Alma and Saul meet, and the widow proposes the founding of a bank, Miss Isrenhausen offers Al $50,000 for his cooperation on her story about Garrett. Tolliver complains to Walcott about the quality of the new Chinese whores and expresses concern over Walcott's temper. In fury over the betrayal of his secret, Walcott goes to the Chez Ami and kills Carrie and Doris. Maddie asks Walcott what he's done. Something very expensive, he answers and slits Maddie's throat. At the livery, Hostetler finds Steve having sexual congress with Bullock's horse. Joni hustles her girls out of town in the back of Charlie Utter's wagon. All right, so here we go. I think someone on the Discord was saying uh, recently that uh, I don't think they're enjoying the show uh, particularly, or at least thinking it was a little bit boring getting to this point, but they, they criticized Walcott as not having a lot to do. And uh, I think this is the Walcott coming out party for him. Yeah. Uh, but it's been building to this point. I would disagree that Walcott hasn't had things to do. I think Walcott's just been kind of subtly in the background. Um, not even in the background. He's just, he's not as... <clears throat> um, it's a long way of just saying they've been building to this point, I think, and they've been building Psy up alongside him uh, to get to this point. They've been building Walcott up to this point. And uh, this is the end result. He does something that is going to cost a lot of money. He does something very expensive. So what did you think about this one? You can start wherever you want, and we'll get around to everything, I guess. What did you do, Mr. W? Something very expensive. One hundred pounds. For now, and more, when I want it, for as many years as I live, for all the years of my life. Do you understand? Oh. Uh, I thought I really liked this one. Um, this had a lot of uh, overlap of little bits of story that I enjoyed. My favorite little bit. This is just a stupid little bit. Is uh, the arrival of the new teacher coinciding with the leaving of J- uh, Jerry. Yeah, when he jumps on the cart. Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought that was great. I really liked that scene. Um, but yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was good. This this one really had a lot of uh, all of the people involved and all the stories felt of a piece of a larger piece of you know the, the town and like this was a good one for me of everybody there being so many different stories going on with so many different characters but they all are are intertwined in one way or another whether it's uh the the scene i just mentioned or just the stuff with merrick 
and his uh, printing press getting destroyed. Yeah. Um, or the uh, the stuff with Isrenhausen is is starting to 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 be a little bit more important, which is nice because that was the the one thing that I didn't really care for. Was this the? Um, I couldn't answer. I couldn't remember in our last podcasts because I didn't know if she had said this yet. Was this the first reveal that she's with the Pinkertons? Has this, yes. Okay. So that was as far not as brought I up know. before. Okay. Yeah. No, I believe that uh, you you got the story, her her story, um, but not who she was working for. Okay. I wasn't sure last last week. You would ask me like to explain her story, and I was like, I was racking my brain whether or not we were just forgetting that she had said yeah. that. But I, I assume she hadn't, so I didn't say anything. But here it's it's certainly laid out uh, clearly what her her like her background is. Yeah, they they continue to do a couple things where it's like uh, that we've talked about before, which is is par for the course for this show, but in other shows would feel strange where they just start talking about something very in-depthly, but I'm pretty sure it's never come up before in the show. Yep. In this episode, it was the bank thing when, uh, unless, unless I completely forget that it's come up before, but when um, Saul and Seth had their scene and Seth was like, I told you not to talk to her about a bank. And I was like, when the fuck did he ever tell him not to talk? What, this is the first I've ever heard about a bank. Oh, I would, I would have said the other thing. I think they've talked about it before. At least Alma has floated the idea of starting a bank or something. Oh, really? yeah. I, I, it must've just been in a block of text that I didn't catch because yeah. it was news, news to me. I think, I think it's news that Saul is like being offered the job, but I, th- mm-hmm. I think that Alma's banking uh, desire has been, established at least through some sort of throwaway dialogue uh, well either way it just shows how much stuff is just in there created that it's, on it's the very fly. easy to, to, to miss yeah. but uh but yeah i um i i was really interested in the end of the the walcott and uh what's uh board queen's name in this maddie, maddie. i was really interested in that because that's one of those stories that feels like I mean it's not like they didn't give you what was going on because when she shows up you kind of un- you understand what she's in for she's basically like trying to make her money and retire essentially yeah and she's using Walcott this I, I think this is this is essential what happens in this is uh, essentially what she assumed was going to happen and, and that she planned for right like wasn't this was her plan was to basically sacrifice one of the girls in order to keep herself financially secure yeah to to give a girl who might be uh not long for this life to walcott because walcott will pay handsomely for these services so she's she's um she's found the golden goose of a john basically and she is Mm -hmm. giving him girls that she assumes are going to be killed by him uh but this is like the end result she's actually seeing what she has been setting up in this episode yeah, and I liked I liked the payoff for it because it, it was one of those stories where um, they didn't really touch on it specifically too much, and there's only so many places you can go with it. And seeing her reaction to uh, him killing the two women was um, just really good. Like I, I I thought it was I it was I was on the fence about it because I was like, well, this feels like one of those stories similar to like the Kristen Bell story where it's like, yeah, yeah, I guess we're, we're done with this, I guess. Yeah. But on the other hand, it was like, no, they they've been kind of this has been percolating underneath, and this is the payoff for it. And I I didn't find it as um, sudden or or dissatisfying at all uh, the way that the Kristen Bell story just kind of like ends. What are we to do here, Carrie? Get rid of her. They'll let you. I suppose they will, but that won't dispose of the problem. What's the problem? I don't know. I can't say. I don't want you to have seen me. I don't care you killed her. She must have done something to you. I mean something different. I don't want to have been seen. Then you're fucking crazy. 
kill me in this fucking shithole. Thematically, the whole point of Walcott doing is this is to say that you should not say that you're not above surprises, right? So it's a sure. Yeah, the, the ending in and of itself is supposed to be surprising, um, in a way that the the Bell storyline is probably not, and it feels a little bit more uh, cut out. But it's like a. I think it's just been one of those things that we we talked about before in the the first half of the second season. It feels a little bit slower than it is, I guess, uh, which is what I talked about in previous episodes. Just like if you're if you're unfamiliar with it, it almost feels like not much is really happening, I guess. Mm. And it mm-hmm. is. It's all building to something, but it's much more uh, methodical and 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 subtle, I guess. Uh, in this yeah. one, and, and this is the turning point. We're halfway through the season, so you'd, you'd anticipate something would happen at this point in the, the the run to sort of propel everything into the next act that they have to get through. Um, I think it's an episode that it does the thing that uh, we've been talking about a lot of the Deadwood episodes do, which is it does a it, it does a lot of mirroring with characters, um, and it takes characters who are in somewhat similar situations and kind of compares them to each other, or it just shows a, um, a similarity that you, you might know is there, but it sort of brings it out to the forefront and then plays with it a little bit. Like the, the, the Tolliver and Walcott one is the most obvious example, which is that they make explicit in this episode, the fact that they are very, very similar characters to each other. They just have Mm -hmm. a different, uh, sort of, I guess I would describe it as Sai is completely comfortable with what he is and Walcott is not comfortable with what he is. And so I, I really love the scene that those two have where they're counting the money and then Sai decides to make his play to sort of like try to blackmail Walcott uh, into things and he reveals that he knows what Walcott's up to and his, his private affairs or whatever Walcott says. And yeah. they have that that great conversation between the two of them um, that ends with the like, you, you know, you can't surprise me yet and sit here in judgment of things. But that's what propels Walcott into his um, attack on the Chez Ami. And it's the reason the reason that Walcott's character is driven so much is that Walcott is just someone who is deeply unhappy with himself and doesn't want to be it doesn't want other people to know what he is and doesn't want to himself realize what he is. And Tolliver recognizes what Walcott is immediately uh, a couple episodes ago. And has been waiting for his moment to explain it, but they're also very very similar because like that's what that the whole quote I had at the start there is that when Ty's talking about there's an attitude that I want to talk to you about like you have this sort of smart out attitude with a quality of anger to it. He's mm-hmm. literally describing himself, right? Like that's how Tolliver right, yeah. talks, and so yeah. he recognizes in Walcott what he knows is in himself, and he attempts to play him in a way, to get the power back in this situation, and it works out for him. But it's mostly because he understands Walcott better than Walcott understands himself, at least in my opinion. Now, that's an attitude right there I want us to counsel on. smart alecky sort of attitude, almost with a qualitative fucking anger to it. I, I, I don't find exact fucking words for it, but it fucking disturbs and concerns me. By my lights, I feel I manage well. Well, you can say that, Mr. Wilcott, yet I hear accounts that you're a dangerous lay, and that adds to my feeling disturbed. Are you inclined, sir, ever so often to ride one off the cliff? Girls, I mean. I am disturbed at my private conduct being spoken of. Well, I should think you fucking would be. And to think of Mr. Hurst's disturbance if he was to fucking know. Because that's a dangerous habit to indulge when you're not among friends. Are you my friend, Mr. Tolliver? And someone past surprise at habits or inclination or turns of events. And who don't confuse himself or sitting in judgment with our Lord and fucking heaven. I see. And who would never tattle to your employer or... Jeopardize what's got to be a handsome fucking income. Goddamn right, I am your friend, Mr. Wolcott. All I can provide for the party is the cliff. Believing yourself past surprise does not commend you to me as a friend. A man inadequately sophisticated 
or merely ignorant, or simply stupid, may believe himself past surprise, then be surprised to discover, for example, that Mr. Hurst already knows of my inclinations and finds them immaterial. Suggesting as a corollary that your skills for blackmail and manipulation no longer are assets to you. And for your fatuous belief in their efficacy, in fact, have become liabilities. In short, you've overplayed your hand. Now, I should think, in consequence, now recognizing yourself as a man past his time, that during this last transitional period, you would devote yourself with grateful and quiet diligence to such uses as others may still find you suitable. I really like that scene because of, uh, you know, what you're saying, where Tolliver thinks he understands Walcott better than Walcott does, but uh, he also overplays his hand. And he it's, it's consistent for Psy to be the person who thinks he has the leg up on everybody only to find out that he doesn't. Yep. And um, Why do you think he overplayed his hand? I guess I would well, argue he doesn't. Well, he, he overplays his hand because he essentially black tries to blackmail him into saying, like, oh, it would be a shame if Hearst ever found out what your proclivities were. And he's like, yeah, he already knows. You know? <laughs> oh, I say, I say. You know, you, you have no power over me. Yeah. Uh, and then he threatens him in some, you know, very eloquent, overly written way. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so to see the, the back end of that. Uh, so, first of all... Um, him overplaying his hand is 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 in line with what he's kind of done through the show at this point, where he's he's sort of like a less convincing Al in these yep. matters. Where if Al were to play this card, Al would would win. Yep. But um, so, so and, I, uh, I I guess to interrupt here, so we're uh, we're in like a a bit of a difficult situation. Although I th- I think I can argue this without sort of like jumping ahead, which is that Walcott's lying about Hearst knowing this and i i think i think that comes through in the episode because he gets very nervous and sort of like starts to um he clearly reacts badly to tolliver talking to him about this this way Mm -hmm. and he's he loses his cool and he loses his uh like his collection of himself He, he sort of gets very uh breathy and upset when tolliver brings up the hearse thing that he's going to tell him so I, I think there's an there's an implication, and it, it is going to turn out to be true that Hearst does not know that this is what Walcott is doing in his private life. Um, okay. So well, that, I, I I don't think that counts in this episode. <laughs> you don't you wouldn't you wouldn't read what why why does Walcott flip out then? I because he's because he's trying to blackmail him, and he's he. But if if uh, he doesn't have anything to blackmail him with, why would he flip out about it? Flip out in, in, in as far as what when he kills the women? Yes. So like if if Walcott was telling the truth, right, and Hearst knew about this, what power does Tolliver have over him? Uh, he doesn't have any. Right. So he wouldn't he wouldn't he wouldn't react the way that he does because Tolliver in that case does not actually see Walcott. He he doesn't. Walcott only reacts badly to people who actually pre- correctly tell him what he is, and Tolliver is correct about him. And that's why he goes and he kills the people who also know what, what he is, okay, which is the, sure. the prostitutes. But but my point my, my point is in that specific scene, Tolliver overplays his hand, and he doesn't he doesn't know that Hearst already that Hearst doesn't know this stuff. But the, what's great about it is that at the back end of the episode, he regains the position by having to clean up after after uh, after Walcott at the end. Oh, see, so I, it's yeah, okay. You know what I mean? So it's it's like in that in that moment, I I think I think you can tell by the way that Psy reacts to the way that uh, Walcott brushes him back that he feels as though he's overplayed his hand. I, but then I, at the yes, end of the yeah yeah. But then at the end of the episode, he realizes that he now has the power. I I, I actually I guess I see the scene different. I do see that in that scene, Psy does act as if he has overplayed his hand, but by the end of it, he realizes that he hasn't because he realizes how upset Walcott is. So he kind of ping pongs back and forth. But I think either way, by the end of the episode, he does identify what the what the issue is there. But Walcott's like thematically, I think it only works if Walcott recognizes what's going on and Tolliver recognizes what's going on because then Tolliver can 
get to the end end of the episode and help him clean things up at that point and he has that he he now has the total control over him like if he did right. if Hearst knew about this helping him clean up doesn't really accomplish anything because it doesn't matter like the whole the whole power dynamic rests on the fact that he has won over Walcott has won over on him in that he knows something that Hearst does not, and he has that power to tell him about well, it. Well, but he also, I mean, he doesn't know that he likes killing women. Like, the, he, he, the information that he gets from Dory, yeah. is that her name? Is just, uh, is Doris, just that. Uh, Doris, I think, yeah, Doris. Doris? I think so. It's just that he gets rough with them. Right, he does. He doesn't. He doesn't imply that he's actually killing women. Yeah, in that scene, does he? Well, I mean, but this is the Psy sees himself. Psy killed uh, Kristen Bell. Like Psy right. is a misogynist who recognizes a murderous misogynist. I think. Yeah. Like, okay. so I, I, I. That's why. That's my take, at least, on why Psy is so effective in identifying what to do in this situation like he he's he's learned a tremendous amount just from being told that he like told oh, that walcott pushes around prostitutes you know it's it's almost whether or not it's believable but i think the only way that it works is that is if you assume that he just knows everything about this guy and even if he's trying to guess and uh pull things out of him and be worried about whether or not he's pushing things a little bit too far and too fast he's done a good enough job about knowing what he's what he's digging for in this guy and correctly identifies it by the end of it. Yeah, that's true. Cause I, I, it's the, um, I was just reading a review like the, remember the old, the other episode where, uh, Psy lets the whores go and they start the shiz on me and he's, he has had that balcony scene with the champagne. He claims it's like a champagne toast. To right. Them leaving. Yeah. I, they, they just brought up the good point that I don't think we did, but it's like, you know, he's, he's up there and he's clearly being threatening cause he's pissed off that they're all leaving him. And, you know, he's sort of jabbing the bottle at their open mouths and like spilling the the champagne all over them or like pouring it on their right. face and stuff like that. And the implication, like, the you know, symbolically it is he's basically, you know, like orally raping them in some way. It's like it's very the imagery is too similar to not see to have it be, you know, to. The imagery is very much in line with that, where his his rage is coming out as a sort of pent up sexual violence, and that's how it's being represented on the screen. But Walcott sure. is exactly the same, I guess, would be my argument: is that he has the same kind of pent up murderous frustration that's within him. And I don't know; it's it's a in, in an episode where you know you sometimes see similarities like Al and Tolliver, and you can kind of contrast the differences between them. I think that Tolliver and Walcott are similarly staged to each other, where they're very similar to each other, but you, the differences are what allow them to have this little power shift in their dynamics with each other. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an interesting way to play it, though, because, I mean, they've, they haven't presented Walcott as exceptionally threatening. No. You know, like, we, we've talked about that before, which is different than Psy. Like, Psy has definitely been outwardly threatening and outwardly violent towards women yep. sexual or otherwise yeah <clears throat> but walcott has up until this point felt as though he was overcompensating for uh, stuff yes so i has so confidence I, that walcott right. pretends to have i think exactly yeah. yeah so that that's why I, that's i mean yeah that's why it feels a little bit strange to me but i i, I do i do agree that they're they're of a say of a piece yeah what's the um you think the strangeness is just the what Sai knows about him at that point is that is that your no i just i don't find them exactly the same because oh i say they've been walcott has been played as as fairly impotent yep um and his rage against the women is is a is a reaction of extreme impotence in this episode yep um which i mean i guess you could argue that that's what uh Sai yeah, he got mad when they all left, right? He couldn't right, stop them yeah. from leaving. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I really, I just really like that. I, like, I, I even like the fact that Powers Booth keeps licking his thumb as he's getting the money. It's a funny little touch they have. He has a funny line of dialogue. He, um, He's learned how to keep keep up discourse while, while, while managing the count or something. It's just kind of a funny thing uh, for him to say, just saying that he can talk while he manages to count his money accurately. <laughs> um, yeah, so I... 
where do you think what do you think of Sai in the season? You had said that Sai was a little bit backgrounded. I guess this is the coming out party for Sai Tolliver, right? Which is that he's made his play onto how right. he's going to flip yeah. things into his control at this point. Yeah. I I thought they'd been hinting towards it pretty well in all of his prior meetings with Walcott. He's clearly played the frustrated henchman who thinks that he's better than the position he's found himself in. Mm-hmm. Um, and his plan here comes off uh, fairly effectively. And I also think that. You know, if you didn't say this, but I'm just, if like if the uh, if the argument is that Walcott or Saitolver overplayed his hand by causing all this murder at the Shazami, he he's actually used Walcott in the way that Hurst uses him, which is that he's used Walcott to accomplish his aims, which is to shut down the Shazami. You know, like he right, yeah. he didn't want that place to exist. He was upset that Joni was over there. And now he's basically killed everybody who works there, except for Joni. And the other the other uh, horrors have been taken out of town by Charlie Utter. So uh, the Shizami does not really have any employees at this point. Um, but it's another similarity of them, I guess, or another reason that like his overreach isn't actually overreach because he, he ends up using Walcott in multiple ways, including shutting down a competitor of his, which is down the road. Yeah, but at the same time, by by overreach, I, I again, I mean, he he's not he's not saying what he's doing. He's not saying what he says to Walcott in order to cause the shutdown of the the Chaise I meet. You know what I mean? Like, right? He it's, a, it's a byproduct. Yeah, right. It's a byproduct, which is great for him. Yes, um, but is not. It's not as though he's he's using him directly to do that. But I, no, I do, right? I do he, yes, yeah. He doesn't. He's not. He's not. He's not setting the stage for this to happen, and he doesn't know right. that this is going to happen. It's just a, a happy byproduct by him. Right. Um, Which, again, is is a little bit different from Al, where if Al were to do this, he would be doing it for a very specific reason, for a very specific result. Yeah, and I, I guess that's a good place to go with Al. Al's in this episode, and he's kind of funny. Uh, I, I think one of the... One of the it's a it's a darker episode. There's a lot of violence. One of the big themes that will tie into Al is that um, it's an episode that is filled with plot lines where people get fucked over by someone and then they go and fuck up somebody else because they can't get back at the person who fucked them over in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's you know Walcott is in that situation. He takes it out on the women, obviously. Uh, Seth Bullock gets upset with Saul, with Saul for having the banking conversation, so he goes and punches Steve the drunk in the face mm-hmm. to take his anger out on him. Did you just intend to insult me? Excuse me, Sheriff. I know. You face business reverses. Like losing my fucking claim. People angry at their difficulties often act like fucking idiots, but there'll be no murdering people in this camp of any color. Or assaults on officials of any stripe. Even Yankton thieves were in league with God knows fucking who. Officials from Yankton or otherwise. Or thieves or not. You can't live with that. Get out of this fucking camp. I can live with it. You have to keep rubbing my fucking nose in it. Do not misconduct yourself again in this camp. It's a like the lesser the lesser thinkers are basically taking out their anger on the people who are powerless beneath them, and it, it counters with Al, who's had this sort of like life after death situation. And Al seems remarkably composed. He's sitting down. He's talking to everybody. He's uh, not reacting or responding with violence to anything. He is hearing everyone's argument and giving pretty much like a fair shake, no matter what they're coming at him with. Uh, so, what do you think of Al on his way on his path to recovery in this one? I thought all the Al stuff was great. I really, I really liked all of it. <clears throat> he, uh, you know, I, I really liked the the posi- positioning him in such a way as to not give away how how literally fucked up he really was. <laughs> like, like literally positioning him, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> that stuff was great. Um, the first, I mean, having EB be the first person through the door was great. That was that interaction was really good yeah or i guess technically the second person through the door all of eb's worries were for not i guess al al understands what he tried to do and he doesn't hold it against him all all of eb's uh like fretting in the previous episode where he's monologuing about betraying elsewhere and ended up not mattering what is this um (laughs) 
if we're he has some funny line like if we're if we're reduced in strength something where we we live in like vitality or something like that and does it like <laughs> huzzah with his hands <laughs> he's such a twat <laughs> i meant you no disloyalty al you look out for yourself against the chance i die i never wished for that outcome but i am a born follower in any case here we are if tactically disadvantaged exactly as before in strength but yeah i i love the the cocksucker conversation was was really good yep and the uh um yeah all that stuff all that stuff was great uh gotta see how much juice this guy has right juice. that was good yeah. I, I'm interested to see where that goes as far as the Chinese Al, prostitutes. Uh, yeah, as far as Al dealing with that with that stuff. Um I love the scene. It's not an Al scene, but when the um when the doctor sees the big trailer full of women, yeah. he reacts like really disgusted and then he immediately sees Sai after that and just kind of like wilts and walks away. Yeah, yeah. Sai gives really him a what the fuck are you going to do kind of look. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was that was really good. But yeah, Al, Al's great. I think they've... Uh, it's... It, it's really fun because it is kind of an excuse to, to catch everybody up on what's going on because he needs to be caught up on what's going on so like they kind of give you this excuse to sort of do a mid-season recap yeah of everything that's happening just by having everyone you, come in and talk to him and explain their situation yeah and in case you know in case you haven't been following it or whatever you get m- more or less you get a pretty clear idea of what's of what's going on yeah 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 i like i like the l scenes i i also <laughs> i love al just like he's so good at dealing with his asshole underlings when uh, he sends uh, Dan out to get reinforcements and Johnny's like, I'll go here. And he's like, no, Dan, go. And Johnny just like droops. Yeah. And then he, p- he puts his hand on his shoulder. He's like, Johnny, I need you here. You know, like it's you have to reinforce that, that he's important and stuff. It's, it's yeah. just so good. We should not go out on the balcony like triplets or whatever. His, yes. Uh, he's going to be like, yeah, he walked around by those guys. Yeah. Yeah, he's still because um, he's still recovering from his stroke. Um, I guess at this point, it's like he's. I think he says his arm and leg feel waxy, so he's mm-hmm. he doesn't have full um, full faculties of himself at this point. Um, yeah, I like the L stuff. Um, I I don't know if you agree. I, I sort of get a, diff- a sense that he is different now. He seems like he's always been kind of moving towards a more moderate position. But I yeah. found his conversations very moderate, even though he he does kind of end it with the doc saying, like, did you have anything to do those, with those Chinese whores? And he says, no, but I'm trying to be friendly with their pimp. So it's like mm-hmm. there's still not he's not the you know, he's not a paragon of virtue who's going to come in and like cut down all the villains of the show at this point. But he he seems calmer or something like there's none of the. In the first season, remember in the second episode, he talks to Persimmon Phil and just lays down that trap of like, keep lying to me, motherfucker, like, and right, see what happens yeah. to you. He doesn't do any of that in these conversations. It's much more of like an honest give and take and more of a battle of the wits than anything else. Not that the Persimmon Phil wasn't, but he's, um, he seems more friendly or something, I guess. And I, I always, I always just, I guess I just interpret this as he's come out the other side of death and has like a new, perspective on things mm. but i don't know whether uh, if you thought any different about him well i think you can see that a bit right away when he has that first conversation with trixie because right. he's it's very subdued and it's it's very much like it's business as usual but it's clearly not you know like they, they're both talking about the thing that upset them previously yeah, they, yeah. they're both well they're both talking about um what the surface level business between them is, but it's clear from the way that they're talking to each other that it's like, it's like when, when two people who used to be in a relationship run into like run into each other at, at, at the store or something or, yeah. or still, still work together where they're talking about <clears throat> business, but it doesn't have the same zip that it used to because clearly something is, is different. And where before Al might've been very angry about all that right, stuff yeah, yeah. here, he's not. Yeah, they they have the 
um, the uh, people who have actually moved past the breakup in their relationship. It's it's a yeah. it's much more of a a matter of a uh, matter of fact type thing that doesn't stir the anger. And they talk about the um, the fact that she's sleeping with Saul and stuff like that. And he's and she, she's being taught how to do accounting and stuff like that. Um, what does he say? Well, like learn, learning is a currency for those people or something like that? <laughs> well, I forgot to mention in the last episode, I thought it was pretty funny that she refers to learning accounting as Jew lessons. Yeah, Jew lessons. <laughs> <clears throat> but like even there, the, the conversation that they're having, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about things as though they haven't moved on. Like she's still talking about how she's learning this stuff and, and hanging around and sleeping with Saul for purposes that'll benefit Al when clearly that's not what's going on. Right. And you know, his, his reactions are, are equal in the, in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. How's the Jew fucking going? It's all right. What does it add to my understanding? He's meeting with the widow this morning. Spoke to the other of forming a bank and of her in that connection. Who's the fucking other? Fucking Bullock. My sensibilities do not need Kotlin either. It's no concern for you. I don't like naming the cocksucker. Anyways, that may be its purpose. He's sitting down with the widow. The Jew. Hope you're getting paid for the pussy. Don't put a price to it. He lose their respect. He's teaching me accounts. That's all right, then. Learning is like currency to them. Yeah, and Trixie has another uh, another good conversation with Ellsworth in this one, which is the comes mm-hmm. true author conversation, where she plants the the seed, no pun intended, about um, well, uh, Ellsworth should propose to Alma because the pregnancy is becoming awkward at this point. That was that was a really good scene too, because um, the way that this shows show works, I was as confused as 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 he was yeah because i was like is she suggesting he marry her or possibly kill her <laughs> or possibly possibly cause an in a, 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 a miscarriage <laughs> oh i got you you know you know i was like i'm not sure exactly what she's i think i know what she's getting at but i'm not totally sure yeah yeah she has um trixie has al's penchant for saying something without uh being like uh specific enough for the other characters to pick up. Right, I, I imagine right. she spent a lot of time with Al and that's become a trait of hers as well. How does sharing observations make me liable to rebuke? You got her knocked up, in other words. Me? I ain't got her in any way at all, Trixie. In your opinion, I'm saying. She's in the way. I work for the woman in her fucking employ. I understand that. And that is the sole fucking full extent of it. Would you do the right thing? I was not involved. We're fucking past that. I know you weren't fucking involved. I was involved, too. As far as that fucking goes. Would you? Would I fucking what? Do the right fucking thing in that fucking situation. What's the situation? Explain it. If she wanted the child, how a woman wants one that... Ain't certain she's made to bear many. Willing even to bear it out of wedlock. But for the hurt she'd do another and the humiliation she'd do. And to that other woman's little boy. Would you do it then? Do. The right fucking thing. Don't get fucking coy with me. Marry her. You're saying. And the child in the eyes of others. The issue of my loins. As much as they care to see. This is only a passing glance. So the comes true author ain't thrown in their fucking face. Or the true author's wife's face. Or the face of that little fucking boy. Ellsworth's importance is continuing. He's going to be sort of her right-hand man with the bank. And at least is being floated the idea that he should propose to Alma because Alma... Uh, can't have this child out of wedlock. And Trixie's whole point is that she wants the baby because it's difficult for her with her medical condition to potentially have another child. And so she wants to keep this one. But 
something needs to be done to spare her embarrassment and to spare the embarrassment of uh, Martha Bullock and uh, William Bullock. So it's it's much more of a I, holistic thing. I'm really looking forward to that conversation where whether it's with him specifically or someone else, she's like, and you think it would be less embarrassing for me to marry you? Yeah. <laughs> given my pedigree? Yep. You know, he's got a great personality. That's true. <laughs> he's he's very helpful. He's, he seems like a great guy. Yeah, you know, maybe it's maybe it's of the of the time marriage is a little bit more economically focused, you know? He's he's been the one setting up this gold claim. Why why not give him some amount of it? Probably more than 50% in the with the uh, marriage laws at the time or something. Hmm. Um almost still sick, almost wants to set up the bank. Um, she gets Bullock upset. Bullock, Bullock, it's a good flashback to old Bullock getting upset about something and then going and beating somebody else up in that yep. one. Um, I did like the follow up to that when he was like, "Yeah, that was stupid," and he, he basically says as much, being like, "That was the old me. I shouldn't have yeah. done that." You yeah. know, et cetera, et cetera. Like Saul's line of a, "If you continue with this line, like we're going to have to fight and you're going to have to work alone while I convalesce." <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So Saul knows exactly how to uh, diffuse that. The bar scene is uh, interesting. I like, um, you know, Steve is Steve the drunk is like a vile, reprehensible character. Um, obviously a racist, as we learned in the last episode. He's a drunk, um, sort of blames everybody but himself for the way that things have gone. However, I, I do feel sympathy for him on this watch through that I don't like I I mm. it's what we learned last time but like I don't think I ever really fully grokked his backstory on the show and right not that he is uh dealing with things well but he he has been I think he in the conversation with Bullock he brings up a good point he's like he talks about like how everyone is just like fucking him over and then Bullock punches him at that point mm-hmm. like that and that's what sort of inspires Bullock to punch him but he kind of has been fucked over, like his entire his entire uh, life getting to this point. And he seems much more of like a sad character than I ever thought of him before. And, you know, he gets his, his no pun intended, comeuppance um, at the end of this one. But he's still... I didn't view this scene with Hostetler and the general as... Um, much of a a big win for them as much as like a sad scene for him in this one. That seems yeah. kind of funny because it's also comic at the same time. Like it's in, it's intentionally trying to be funny, but because uh, it's a funnier version of the Cy and Walcott sequence too, where they're trying to get power over each other. But mm-hmm. I, I Steve seems more pathetic on this watch through than he ever did before, and even though he is a sort of reprehensible character. Do you believe that God can act through a nigga? God does not want you to kill. Do you believe that God would let me feel mercy toward you that tarred me and fucked his horse? I do, but I did not fuck the horse. Would you go hence in gratitude if you received mercy in this stable? I would. Right out. I fucked the sheriff's horse. Then we're going to have him sign it. I didn't fuck the horse. I fucked. I jerked off. I came in his leg. Would you sign off? On that slight exaggeration to keep from getting your fucking head smashed in? Yes. Would you bless colored folk and God that's father to us all? I would, and go hence in gratitude. Yeah, I mean, knowing the backstory, what's the backstory? He was like from a long line of confectioners, but he lost his candy factory when he yeah, got, got drafted, drafted or something. Yeah, yeah. So save, fighting to end slavery cost him his fortune down the line. Right. Um. Yeah, he's he's very uh, he's very sad, but he's also um a really good representation of the kind of person who is um. What am I trying to say here? He's in a position where he's very easily convinced to blame other people for things. Yeah. Um. What rightly or wrongly, mostly wrongly, but uh, I mean, you know, Bullock didn't have to punch him in the face. No, but, uh, no. he but, didn't have to sell know. his gold claim either. But right, they, like right. they, there is truth to it that 
they are being preyed upon for their gold claims. You know, it's like definitely, they, yeah. yeah. But you know, watching him uh, pick himself up the floor off the floor while that other guy is essentially egging him on to go do something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, Tom Tom Nuttall's bar has great characters in the background who will pop yeah. in. And <laughs> say that. Is that guy never, does he never show up again? No, uh, he does actually. His name is Rutherford. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit of trivia, but he's different from the guy. Remember the guy who, uh, when Charlie Utter came in and asked what happened to Bill, that guy stood up and was like, I took the bullet. Oh, yes. There, yes, it's like, in my hand. Yeah, there's, there's a running theme at this bar of like background characters who yeah. step in and, and say like profound things. And if you're wondering um, why this guy seems to be a much worse actor, uh, Rutherford in the episode in this episode is the guy at the bar who talks about the skills of justice being blind is a uh, producer Ted Mann on the show. So, oh, is he really? Yeah, so that's it's one of the one of the writers. Um, but yeah, you know he's the kind of guy who's 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 in a really bad spot um, and looking for somebody to blame. And he's I mean, he's got clearly he's got uh, the only thing he thinks he has left is his, is his dignity, and people keep taking that from him. He, at least that's, that's how he thinks anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so he's going to lash out in a way that's uh, <clears throat> fairly recognizable, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, um, and literally in this episode, thematically... If only, if only people who, instead of going on a mass shooting, would just go jerk off on a horse. Yeah, somewhere. I know. Well, maybe we should just bring horses back. To... <laughs> Did he have sex with that horse? Is Steve lying, or is he telling the truth? It didn't... If he was... If he was having sex with that horse, he doesn't know how horses work, I don't think. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need a very specific angle of insertion. Yeah, I think you need a stool. I, I didn't see a stool. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not talking down to Steve, but I think he, I think he needs a stool. He was also, he was also, uh, when he was not aware that Hostello was behind him, was, seemed to me to be clear that he was not actually having sex with the horse. He right, was just trying yeah. to beat off on it. But I yeah. find his, his constant defense where they're like, did you sign this board that says you fucked that horse? He's like, I did not fuck that horse. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I mean, like, even that is, even what he does is just so pathetic yeah. because like he, he he talks this big game about fucking the horse and then carving it into the <laughs> leg of the horse and then you know he gets there and he's like ah, this is good enough <laughs> we don't really need to do all that stuff i was talking about yeah it just shows how prevalent uh like sexual assault is in this like it's the comic yeah. version because like walcott is the far end extreme obviously and steve is the more impotent uh, example of it where but it's it's still the same idea but it's just like taken to comically different uh, levels yeah yeah but you know i mean um th- that scene and and uh the return of fields is that his name yeah Sam- samuel Sam fields, fields. Yeah. and uh hostedler and even the inclusion of charlie utter what i think the thing that i really liked about this episode overall is that it aside from basically jane Every character had something to do. Yep. Like the, everybody who's on this show was involved in a story, which was involved in the story, except for Jane. I don't know what she's doing, but yeah, yep. um, I, in a way that I feel like some of the other episodes hadn't done as smoothly. Yeah, it's true. There was a. Um, it's so difficult at this point since the cast is so huge. It is. Yeah, it, is, it just keeps getting bigger. Yeah, it is. It is an accomplishment to uh, involve everybody, even if they don't have much to do. I, I mean, I guess you, uh, the downside obviously is that like you can't focus on everybody equally. Like the doc doesn't, right. doc hasn't had much to do in the past couple episodes, except for Tender Al and things like that. But, yeah. uh, the storylines continue and they, and they roll on. And, um, especially with like the production of how the show was done. It's fairly impressive that they managed to do things like this with just mm-hmm. like constantly running behind on scripts and just writing scenes like the morning of and having actors come on and just yeah, be like, you're going to do it this way. I'm so curious about like <clears throat> how a contract would work for this type of show. Like what was, um, fuck, what the hell's his name? Uh, what's the doctor's name? It's, I'm blanking on Dorf, the actor's Brad, name. Brad Dorf. Dorf, yeah. Was Brad Dorf just doing nothing else? While in like or or Jane, Jane's a great example. Was the actress who played Jane just 
not doing anything, getting paid to sit around and, and wait week to week to, or is like, is it scheduled out? So it's like, yeah, we're not going to use Jane for like the next three episodes. So feel free to book something. You know what I mean? Like what's it for a show like this to be a, a main player on the show who's not really used a ton. Yep. What does that do for your schedule as far as like taking other work? So according to the Deadwood Bible, um, they started off by uh, they had some scripts up front, and the char- and the actors would sort of have a loose idea of what their schedule was, and they would sit in their trailers or whatever for non uh, shooting time. Mm-hmm. They eventually learned that the way to get into the show was just to hang around the set because Milch would be oh, so running really? behind yeah. that he would just say, "Who is here and who can be in a scene with me?" Oh, interesting. Yeah. And that's actually how a few of the extras got into speaking roles. On it was that they were just always <laughs> there, and he would he would use them over and over that's again. Funny. So the actors eventually learned that uh, they had to just kind of hang out when they weren't scheduled to shoot or they didn't have scenes upcoming because they didn't know where things were going to go. That's um, really funny, but also probably really frustrating. Yeah, it's a if you're trying to if you're trying to stack jobs, it's probably not a conducive right, situation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you're getting paid to be there, whatever. But you know, yeah, that's it's like you know wrestlers do that. Like they have a WWE. I don't know how much they they may have changed things since Vince McMahon left. Probably not though. But basically, you have to show up to, for Monday Night Raw. And then you have no idea. Sometimes you have no idea if they're going to use you or not. And you basically show up to the show, hang out in the back at the catering place. And then sometimes they're like, hey, uh, we need you to do a two-minute match. Can you get it? And it was, oh, yeah, sure. And, but most of the time it's just like you show up and you hang out. Yep. And maybe they use you. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're going to. But then they cut your match to last second. Yeah. It's very strange. I had this epiphany <laughs> the other day. Yeah. Because uh, there's this book coming out all about, uh, you know, systemic abuse in hollywood and what have you yep and there was a big there's a chapter put online about saturday night live and the culture behind the scenes there and 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 uh you know x y and z and i i read like i read maybe a a couple pages of it and i was like (laughs) I, i i stopped and i went holy shit lauren michaels is like comedy vince mcmahon <laughs> because I was looking at the way that those two was Vince things McMahon work. a comedy version of Lorne Michaels. It could go either way. Almost, <laughs> yeah, right? I was looking at the way that those two entities work, and they're very similar as far as like it's a very sort of like sink or swim culture. Yeah, and you're kind of thrown into the deep end, and there's a lot of pressure coming from certain places, and it's you have it's, to you have to keep guy, up with the engine who is a workaholic, you know, to fit in. Right, yeah, and that's the thing. There's one guy at the top making all the decisions regardless of whether or not you agree with them yep. or who who else, you know, and it's the same kind of thing where you work on a sketch all week and then they cut it last minute or it, it was just, it was very similar. Uh, it seemed like a very similar kind of um, culture, which I'd never thought of before. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um I mean, I guess, it, you know, Deadwood could kind of be seen as the same thing. You're kind of working yeah. on the, the head guy's schedule, right? And it's maybe more conducive to have, although maybe wrestling and uh, WWE and SNL certainly has a like a system behind what they do, which makes it a little mm-hmm. bit more structured. But Yeah, Deadwood seems a little bit more ramshackle. Yeah, it's, it's a little <laughs> bit more just chaos uh, in and of itself. But I took completely unrelated, sort of. Yep. Uh, I always wonder how people who work on South Park managed to stay sane doing that job based on that documentary they put out a handful of years ago about how they produce those episodes. Yeah. And where it's like (laughs) they do them. It's like it's like a bunch of high school seniors doing a project, basically, where it's like, yeah, you've got six months to do these. Oh, we're going to do them five days before they air. Yeah. You need the you need the juice. You need the 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 yeah, uh, the deadline to to motivate you, I guess. Yeah. And false deadlines don't work or anything like that. It is. So. It is true. I am. Yeah, I am definitely a person who is is a deadline driven person, and it's it's so bad though too because it's like if you give me a deadline and I know that there's a crack in that deadline, you may as well have not given me a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be firm you know, with your deadline. You know what I mean? Where it's like 
Yeah, where it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, we the, we, the deadline is this, uh, but, you know, we're still working on this thing and we haven't got to this yet. In my head, I'm like, oh, okay, so the yep. deadline is really three weeks from that point. <laughs> Push it out a little bit. Yeah, you know, if you could get it to me Friday, that'd be great. But if not, just get it to me Monday. It's like, all right, I'll see you on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um. Tuesday is when I tell you I'll have it for you tomorrow. <laughs> I thought you meant this. Fr- I thought you meant next Friday. I'm sorry. That's something that always confuses me. Did, if you don't did, come in tomorrow, don't bother coming in on Monday. Woo! Five day weekend. <laughs> did um, does the the use of next Friday ever confuse you? It confuses me endlessly. Yes. When people when depending it's, on the day when yeah. it's Thursday, or when it's Wednesday, and someone goes, "Can you get this to me for next Friday?" I go the day in two days is the next Friday to me, right? Oh, okay, sure. But they they mean the next after this coming Friday. Right. So I feel like there's a a line drawn in the week where I find that confusing. So it's like if you say that to me on Sunday, if you say get it to me by next Friday, I don't know if you mean the coming Friday or the following Oh, because the calendar, you mean you're looking at the calendar of like... Yeah. Okay, yeah. But if it's in that week, like if you're into the days of the week and you say next Friday... I'm going to assume it's the following week. Okay, I, I'm always I'm always confused by it, and I always have to double check. It's like it's like biannually. Does that mean yeah, twice a year or every two years? Yeah, by by because yeah, by or, yeah, it's the same exact thing. Bi monthly can mean every two months or twice a month or something. Yep. So, I always get a job that pays you bi monthly. So you're yeah. very <laughs> nervous about whether or not you're getting paid. Um, something very expensive to get back to. I think we talked about everything to this point. Um, is there any plot that we missed? Well, I just, man, I felt so bad for Joni. Yep. Like, what? what's the, I mean, where does she go at this point? She chose to run back to Cy for help, yeah. right? She didn't go to Bullock, although Cy mentions that, like, where is Bullock when you need him? Uh, but she runs back to Cy, to the abuser. The girls are gone. Her business is gone, I guess, at this point. Uh, Walcott remains and although side talks side talks Walcott out of not doing anything to Joni, I think right at the end of this episode, he's, he has a conversation says to not worry about her or something. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, I guess that's yeah. I guess that's pretty much it. So I mean, in, in summary, um, I like this episode. I've been really liking the second season of Deadwood so far. It, it is more subtle, as we said ad nauseum uh, over and over again, but it's. Uh, I think that the I think that the plots are more there's more like layers to it or something like that. I, I find that the episodes this season really link well. Like I, I don't think I praised the um the racism story last episode enough mm. in how they just shoved all these disparate plot lines together and come out with a character like Steve who like sits at the nexus of all the plot lines and is like an actor in all of of the plot lines. And I feel like that's the same thing that's happening here with Walcott and like the, the mirroring of Al and Walcott losing his power and side doing his uh, twists and turns and stuff like that. I feel like the, the show is just all the plots that are building into each other like the Shazami and, and Walcott or anything else like that, or Alma even in the pregnancy, it's all like sort of just magically connecting with each other. Um, even mm-hmm. if they're not overtly scripting scenes that they weigh against each other, the con- like the con- I don't know how to say it, like the construction of the universe is so good that if you take a theme and you use that theme to write the the point of the episode, the, the for some somehow a lot of the stories will be able to show that theme through them. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, he's got this sort of like rubber band ball of stories that are all wrapped around each other. And depending on how he holds it up to the light, he can get a different episode out of each thing. Yeah. It's I hard to I, do. I wish I knew. I wish I knew how to write like him because it's very impressive. It's just dense. And it's just, I mean, just the, the, just the way that they wrote this, like on the fly. Like, obviously, this explains why the show is only three seasons, right? But like, right, we are yeah. we are going to get to it's, not, it's un- unsustainable. It is unsustainable, but it's it's um, I guess it's just a strength of um, you know, we typically talk about it in genre shows, but it's like it's a it's a universe building exercise, right? As long as your universe makes sense and the the characters in it 
are believable and good, you can come up with almost infinite ways to play with them in that sandbox. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of what we said about, um, Star Trek, right? Next generation. The reason that the, 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 the best episodes of those shows, or I should say the best series of those shows are the ones where the characters each have a definable right. position and like ethos. Yeah. So you kind of know that they're going to be bringing something unique to each situation. Yeah. It's when you don't have that where things get boring. Yeah. Too true. Yeah. And <laughs> it is, it's like a, uh, if you're making a new Star Trek show, that's probably rule number one, right? The cast has to be, any TV show. It doesn't have to be Star Trek. Like the, the cast has to be identifiable. There has to be a a thing to each of them. Otherwise, there's just no reason to have these characters in the show. And yeah. Yeah, that's what's so frustrating about a lot of modern shows. Yeah. Star Trek notwithstanding, but I mean that's an example. The thing we've been that's the thing we've been watching the most of. But it's just like s- characters have sort of just turned into like everybody's a smart ass. Yeah. And so that doesn't do you any good because you don't know how any of these characters are going to react differently from each other situation to situation. And right. so it's not, it's kind of taking the drama away or making it more difficult anyway. Do you have um, final thoughts about this episode? I thought it was good. It was, uh, it was, uh, this was probably one of my, the episodes I liked more in the season so far. Okay. Um, just because I think it, like I said, it's it's kind of firing in all cylinders. Everybody's got something to do. They're moving things forward, and it's um, it is a it is a fairly <clears throat> a fairly solid turning point episode as far as uh, you know where where these things are going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, next episode is one of my absolute favorites of the series, so we will get to that in no time at all next week but it's been a good stretch i'm enjoying uh the second season so uh so far and um it's different than the first but i find it i I just like this world i like sitting in this world i um it's funny just because we record so frequently right like sometimes when it it gets to the night before and like oh fuck i gotta watch something right like i'll (laughs) i'll sort of realize it and i'll be i'll be doing I'll be doing, I'll be like, you know, just like doing something or doing like uh, reading, reading or watching something else or doing something and be like, oh, I got to actually watch this thing that I'm scheduled to do. And um, out of habit, I think Deadwood, I always feel that like, oh, shit, I got to watch the thing. And I put it on and I'm kind of annoyed that I have to watch something. But then I so quickly settle into the Deadwood world that I'm like, oh, why was I upset? I, I love this right, show. Like yeah. this is, is, I enjoy it. And the episodes always fly by. You know, I don't know. It, they, they they go by very quickly, and I, I enjoy them, and uh, I do love the show so very much. Yeah. I do find them to be pretty dense. Like, this episode in particular, I actually checked the time because I was like, Jesus, there's a lot of stuff going on in this yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. Was this, uh, I guess they've all been around 55 minutes or something like that. Um, that's it. So we'll see what happens to Walcott in the next episode. We will see how the show recovers and writes itself from this position, and we'll see the continued improvement of Elsewhere Engine as uh, as stuff comes around. And we're still waiting for George Hurst to show up. So, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. Patreon.com slash the Penske File if you want to support the show. Something Pretty is over there. Patreon.com slash the Penske File. You can support all the shows over there, including shows that Clay does, such as Clay. The Rotten Horror Picture Show, where we talk about horror movies. Uh, and on Patreon, we're doing Video Nasties this year. Once a month, we're covering a movie off the Video Nasties list. Um, <clears throat> what month are we in? June? Yeah, uh, this will come out in June. June is The Burning, which I'm excited to watch because that's like one of the the, the first post-Friday the 13th ripoffs uh, starring a young Jason Alexander and is... Uh, I believe the first movie produced by the Weinstein brothers. Oh, interesting. So it's uh, it's an interesting piece of That's semi- thematically fr- relevant to the Deadwood podcast. Yeah, I suppose. yeah. <clears throat> semi. It's kind of semi forgot. It's not really forgotten in like horror circles, but in the larger zeitgeist of these movies, it's not one that gets brought up that much. But yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, check it all out. Patreon.com slash ThePenskyFile. ThePenskyFile.com if you're just looking for the shows. Everything is out there. We will be back next week. Go ahead. And the Badass Podcast. We'll talk about Batman the Animated Series. That's out there, too. Listen to that. And Oscar I got a comic book. (laughs) (laughs) I got a comic book on the stands, Generation Joker, that I wrote with Sean Murphy. Go get that. Uh, I think that's everything. That's it. The shows continue as usual. We'll be back next week with... One of my favorite episodes is called EB Was Left Out. And we are in episode seven of Deadwood at that point. Moving through. So we're pretty much halfway through the show at this point. Um, oh, okay. How many episodes in season two? Twelve. I think there's 12, twelve in every okay. season. I think. No, I'm nervous. But it's around there. I'm, yeah, because it's 36, right? 36 episodes. Yep. So 12 in each season. That's public math for you right there. (laughs) Um, I didn't even have to use my Google calculator. Hey, I used my Alexa in a pinch for 22 minus 8 today, so. Yeah. I I was thinking about other stuff. I have have at work, it'll be very difficult to explain. I have one mathematical thing that I try to do constantly, and I can never figure out how to do it, and I always feel very embarrassed about it, and I wish I would just, I, I should just spend 10 minutes to do it. But like, if you have $575, right? Mm-hmm. And that is 8% of a total. What is the 100% of the total? For some reason, that always fucks me up. I can't do that math very easily. I always have to do like the. Um, oh, I, I can't do that math. The, I always have to, I think I the shortest way to do it is like the, you know, if you have like, 12x equals 108, and then you divide each side by x, and that gives you what x is and stuff like that. That's the sure. I think that's the only way I can it. do it. But I'm always embarrassed about it. I can never. I just end up punching the calculator until it gets to a number that's close, and I say that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. We are done with something pretty. We'll be back next week with EB was left out. See ya. Go to the hotel. Eat if you can stand the food. This will all be took care of. I told you, Mr. Wilcott. All I can't provide is the cliff. Go and not get out of here.